Morning, friends. How are you? That's pretty good for 10.15 in the morning. I guess it's not 10.15 anymore. It's 10.40. Good to see you all. Um, you're also far away, so if you don't mind, I'm going to just move, move this podium up a little bit. Um, if you are running the slides, if you can do me a favor, hopefully this isn't too complicated, and if it is, it's not a problem. Can you go back to our last song, um, the It Is Well Through It All? Can you throw that one slide on there for me just real quick? It was through it all, through it all. I'm not a singer. I don't know the words, but if you can find that and throw, um, this one's this one's totally fine. Do you guys realize the the words that you were singing on the screen? If you looked in your bulletin, you'll you'll probably would have seen the message title for today. Not a super fun, energetic topic. We're going to be talking about suffering. And a few moments ago, most of us in this room saying, through it all, through it all, it is well. I don't know about you, but I had a hard time singing those words because my attitude, because my first response and instinct is not to say it is well through stuff that I don't like and it is suffering. But that's not an excuse for me not to sing it because sometimes what we need to be doing, and this is not my message, I'm sorry, that's your fault for picking that song, but I was just processing this. But sometimes what we need to do is speak things into existence. I needed to sing those words to make myself believe those words. So that's your fault. That's not my message, just a little sermonette. We can go back to the introduction slide. My name is Carl Edwards. Um, Like Andy said, I serve at CrossNet Ministries. Uh, We serve the Alenco County School District. Uh, Our mission is to offer help and hope in the name of Jesus by empowering the people of Elenco County, not just New Holland, not just Blue Ball, but all of Eastern Lancaster County. My role is Director of Development and Ministries, so I oversee our youth center, and I also ask people for money every single day, and it's a blessing. I am not here to ask you for money. It's about a year since I've been here. I was here twice last summer, so I'm thrilled that I get to spend today with you. Last summer I spoke twice, this time I spoke once, and you like kind of meet in the middle, which is great on that time. So um, if you look in your notes section in your, your bulletins, there, there is a note section for you. Those underlying things were supposed to be blank, so you actually don't really need to follow along because the work has already been done for you. <laughs> so not a problem though, it's all good. So there are some spaces in there. Um, I'm terrible with PowerPoint, so I put some blanks in there. So as I share, as we, we worship through the message today, if there are anything that God prompts your heart that you want to write down, there are some, some spaces and some blanks in there. Um, I am married to uh, Mary Edwards, and we have two children. Um, I'm typically only allowed to go out and speak, uh, go out and speak about once or, once or maybe twice a month. My wife works full-time in ministry as well. She works full-time at Gateway Church in Parksburg. She's a kid ministry director, so she allowed me to be here today. She tells me the weeks of the month that I'm allowed to go, and it just happened that today is that week for the month of July. So just be praying for my wife this morning because she's going to be leading some things from stage and doing some family dedications today, and she is not an upfront person. She loves details and behind the scenes, but God's stretching her as well. But I can remember this incident, right, like it was yesterday. It was about three years ago, and um, I was in our youth center on West Franklin Street in New Holland. I, 
I played basketball previously, I feel like so long ago, so I was trying to relive the glory days playing basketball in our youth center. And I, was, I played, I'm a big guy, so I was, I was backing this kid down in the post. I, I, I take a pivot, and I hear it. You guys know, I hear pop, a loud pop, not just like a little pop, but it was a loud, like a large rubber band popping. And what happened, as I got up and I tried to walk it off, and I sat down, and they grabbed me some ice, and I started to elevate my foot, and uh, I reached down behind my ankle, and I didn't feel what typically is an Achilles tendon, right? It was just kind of like mushy skin. I tore my Achilles. But it wasn't just like a, a normal injury, really no injury is a normal injury, it's frustrating. But you, you probably don't know this, but this was my first night at CrossNet. My first night on my new job. The week prior, I moved my wife and my two kids from Maryland to, um, we live in uh, Leola and CV, right behind Achenbox, right? That smell, oh my goodness. A week prior, we moved here. We felt like God was calling us, moving us from a, a previous ministry, calling us to Cross Connection, then now Cross Net. And my first night, my first night in the youth center, my Kirlis is torn. So what, four days later, it was a Thursday night, so a Monday, woke up in the morning, had to have surgery. Weeks on my backside, on a recliner, months sitting, Two hard casts for about six weeks each, another air cast for another six to eight weeks, months of physical therapy. It wasn't until a full year where I could run, jump, or even play basketball. A full calendar year. It was hard. It was frustrating. It was frustrating. That was a moment, not maybe the largest moment, but a moment in my life where I would tell you that I was on a journey of suffering because I felt like God called me from a place to another place and he threw this trial right in the middle of it. How am I supposed to serve you, God, if I'm sitting on my butt? How? And we'll talk about that story later, but I'm sure that all of you, while I am sharing my story, you're like, Carl, that's nothing. Let me tell you about mine. <laughs> Let me tell you my story. I listened to your message last week. I believe it's Pastor John, is that right? Is that, was, was that his name, John? I think, okay, just make sure. No one was shaking their head, so I was like, crap, what is his name? <laughs> so I listened to his message last week, and let me just recap some of the players that we have in our story. We're going to pick up John 11, 38 through 54. We have Mary, right? She's a contemplative worshiper. She was commended for her personal worship style. She sat at the feet of Jesus. We have Martha. She's a little bit of a perfectionist, right? Maybe some OCD in there. She's a very hard worker. We have Lazarus, he's dead, but he's, he's a character in this story. We know that he was the brother of Mary and Martha, and he's not to be confused with the beggar, Lazarus, in Luke chapter 16. Then we have Jesus, another character, and there's some other characters, but these are the, the major players in our text today. We know that Jesus was a friend of Lazarus. We know that he mourned his friend's death. We know that Jesus is the son of God. We know that he is a miracle worker. He is the I am. And as we think about chapter 11, some of the things that transpired, we know that Jesus heard word of his friend's death and he tarried. He didn't come right away. 
And we know that there was some frustration between Mary and Martha and maybe some other family members or friends because they know who Jesus was. They know what he is capable of and he didn't come right away. We know about even the frustration that Jesus might have had, not just they might have had, that he had with some of the bystanders, with some of the family members. Maybe because of even their lack of faith. They knew a lot about Jesus. They knew who he was. But I believe there's a big difference in knowing and believing. I believe you would understand and believe that as well. Big difference between knowing something and believing it, like we sang earlier. So we're going to pick up our story. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to pick up at verse 38. Verse 38. John chapter 11, verse 38. So Jesus was still angry as he arrived to the tomb, a cave where the stone was rolled across his entrance. Verse 39, Jesus says, roll the stone aside. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you, sorry, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Again, knowing versus believing, that word is gonna keep coming up. So they rolled the stone aside, then Jesus looked up to the heaven. He said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said out loud for the sake, but I said out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were bound in grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a headcloth. Jesus told them, Unwrap the man and let him go. Verse 45. Many of the people who were with Mary, um, believed in Jesus when they saw this thing that happened. And our text does go on from there, and we'll recap that a little bit later, but not at this moment. So as you read this text, and I believe if you grew up in Christian circles, you would have heard this story, you would know this story. It's a significant story because only three times did Jesus raise someone from the dead, right? So this is a, this is a big deal. And the, that, that expectation, that, that, that piece in verse 45 where many came to know Jesus is significant because of what they saw. And if I can be honest with you, as I prayed about this over the last couple of weeks of where we wanted to go, where I wanted to go, where I felt like God was leading us in this text, there's a lot of areas that we could cover. And if you were in my shoes and you were preaching today, you might not have gone the suffering route, but I'm going to tell you why we did Here are some of the things that I process and I pray through. We could look at the difference, again, between believing and knowing. We can look at Mary. We can even, if we focus on the second half of the passage, we could look at the Pharisees, this difference between knowing and believing. We could look at the parallel between Lazarus and sinners and being dead in sin and the power of God brings about new life and he breathes new life. We could go there, but we're not going there. We could talk about how frustrated Lazarus probably was that he was dancing in heaven raised back to life, and now he has to hang out with his sisters again. We could talk about that. We could talk about the Pharisees, and we can spend a ton of time with the Pharisees. And I don't like talking about the Pharisees because the more I talk about the Pharisees, the more I see myself in them. So we're not going to talk about the Pharisees today. We're not going to talk about their schemes and their plans and their plotting to kill Jesus. We're not going to do that this morning. We're going to go a different direction. We're going to go somewhere. We're going to talk about something that often we don't like to talk about in our Christian evangelical circles. Our Christian middle-class mindset avoids places of suffering. We are, there are things we don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about our money. 
We don't like to talk about sacrifice. We don't like to talk about suffering because it gets too personal. It's, too, it's TMI. It's too much information. We know that suffering is this. It's a state of undergoing pain, distress, and hardship. You've experienced it. I know you have. I've experienced it. And if we stopped our service right now and we did a testimony time where you were able to come up here or I gave you a microphone, probably each story would outdo the previous one, right? And we would probably be here till tomorrow because suffering in our life is prevalent. It's always there. And we also know that suffering isn't something new, right? It's not something new. That, that first blank in your notes states this, the dilemma of suffering is that it is inherent in scripture. All throughout scripture, suffering is prevalent. Jesus talks about suffering. He says, I've suffered, so therefore you are going to suffer. In the Old Testament, we have two characters that we see often. Joseph was abused. David, even because of some of his own choices, experienced consequences and significant suffering. Go to the New Testament, we see Paul. Do I need to list Paul's, right? He does it for us. Shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, suffering, suffering. And we looked at our text this morning. Mary, Martha, Jesus experiencing death of a loved one, death of a friend, death of a brother. The dilemma, oh, sorry, it's behind you. It's in front of me. I saw it. You're probably like, what are you pointing at? My bad. The dilemma of suffering is inherent all throughout Scripture. So this is not something new. This isn't something that, that it doesn't take you long. Even when I say the word suffering or you read the sermon title, your, your mind immediately went to a place of suffering for you. So what I want to do quickly before we, we, we talk about suffering, and, and if I can just give you a quick picture, I don't have a ton of time. I, I talk way too much, and I'm not even in my notes, so I apologize. Um, what I would like to do this morning is we're not going to talk about, you might see in your notes it says our response to suffering. I'm not going to even really be talking about you and I as we experience suffering. What I would like to talk about is how we support those in our community to those who are experiencing suffering. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going to go with this. So let me just highlight some of the things that we saw in verse 38 through 53. 38, we see that Jesus was very frustrated, and it said he was still frustrated. Did you guys see that? So that's what we talked about last week. So he was still frustrated by lack of faith. Verse 39 to 40, Jesus gives the audience a command. He gives the bystanders a command. He says to remove the stone, to move the stone aside. And of course, Martha chimes in, and she pushes back on Jesus a little bit, right? But it doesn't stop there. Jesus actually counter pushes back, and he pushes back again. He says, didn't I tell you? Verse 42, Jesus prays a significant prayer here. The purpose of this prayer was to create faith in the hearts of the people that were around the tomb that are watching the tomb. This is what he, he says this. He's praying to God out loud. Out loud he is praying this. It was aimed at bringing the observers into the group of believers, those who are watching that maybe didn't have faith like maybe some of the disciples or others around. It was, this, it was aimed to bringing observers to himself. And my friends, we actually see the result of this. We see the result of Jesus' prayer. His prayer was fulfilled. In verse 44, we see that Lazarus was brought back to life. Again, significance because this is only one of three people that Jesus raises from the dead. 
And because of this act, revival actually happens. The 45 says many came to know Jesus. Many people believed because of what they witnessed with their eyes. And we really didn't look at 46 to 43, and I would love for you to do that as a homework assignment this week. Because of this act, because of this act, because this is something that is not normal, because someone who was dead for many days came back to life, people believed, and that was scary to the Pharisees. Verse 46 to 43 outline a plot, the beginning of a plot. I shouldn't say outline the actual plot, but it's the beginning of the plot where Jesus is going to be killed. The Pharisees go to their leadership, the Sanhedrin, and they start to scheme. They start to scheme and process what it's going to take to kill this guy who is doing things that have never been done. It has to be witchcraft. It has to be wizardry. What is this? What's going on? That's our text. That's where we're at today. It's so rich. I'm begging you, please go home and, and study this over the next couple days. Study this in the weeks ahead as you continue in this series of John. But again, we're not going any of those places this morning. There are two verses, two phrases that I'd like to focus on today. And this isn't in your notes, but I'll put it on the screen for you. And it is verse 39 and 44. Jesus gives two commands to the bystanders. Jesus gives two commands to the audience that is around him, the audience that is mourning the loss of a brother, of a friend. He gives them two commands, and what does he say? He says, roll the stone aside in verse 39. You guys see that in your Bible? It's there, right? Okay. Verse 44, unwrap him and let him go. So if you roll the stone aside, we understand and we know just from looking at history, this is probably a very similar tomb to the one that Jesus was put in later, where there's a large stone that was in front of the opening. Verse 44, unwrap him and let him go. Do you ever stop? Because I'm sure most of us have heard this story. As I'm reading this story and spent some significant time in it, I had to stop. So I'm asking you, if you stopped and thought about, like, how did Lazarus come out? How did he walk out? The text literally says, his hands and his feet were bound in grave clothes, and his head, his face was wrapped with a head cloth. I don't know. Or did he hover out because of the power of God? I don't know. Just kind of hover. I don't know. This, my, I'm weird, I know. I just, I just think about it. But Jesus gives this commands to, hey, move the stone away. Move the stone away. Lazarus comes out, hey, unwrap him. Unwrap him and let him go. The significance here is that he engages the audience in the resurrection process. I'm going to say that again. Jesus engages his audience in the resurrection process. No, they did not raise him from the dead, but they had roles in the process. Does that make sense? It wasn't necessary for Jesus to even give them a task. Jesus could, he just raised someone from the dead. I'm sure he could have used the force to move the stone away, right? He could have done that but he doesn't. He asks them, he gives them this task anyway. He gave them a messy, hard, and smelly task. Remember what Martha said in verse 39. She says, I think it's 39, yep. She says, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. 
And she was right. This is a little bit morbid, but one study says 24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs start to decompose. They start to decompose. Three to five days after death, the body starts to bloat and stuff starts to come out. It's, it's weird. It's awkward. So she was right. In a sealed tomb, no matter what spices or no matter what herbs they put on that body in the tomb, it doesn't matter. When they open that door, there's going to be like a whiff of something coming out of there. So she was right. This is an accurate statement, but Jesus still asked them to roll the stone aside, unwrap him, and let him go. My friends, I'm turning this back on you and I now, not just Mary and Martha and those who were around. I believe that God is calling you and he is calling me as Christ followers, imitators of Jesus, to step into death and the darkness of our world and show and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that God is calling you and I to step into death into darkness and share and show the love of Jesus Christ. God is giving us simple tasks, but sometimes hard tasks, sometimes messy tasks to move a stone aside, to unwrap him and let him go. I, I, I like to believe that, that Jesus was really saying to them, do you smell that? <laughs> do you see that? I made that happen. I breathe life into dead things. I make dry bones get up and dance in the middle of a stench. I am the God of second chances. I am present and do my best work in the middle of death and darkness. That's some serious stuff right there. That'll preach. Jesus is asking them to do two seemingly insignificant things, but he, he's calling us to step into the messiness. Friends, suffering is all around us. You guys know that. <laughs> look to your left and to your right. Look at your family. Look at your work situation, whatever. Suffering is all around us. Trauma is all around us. Abuse is all around us. And yet... We know all this, and yet in Scripture, you and I, our churches, our ministries, our families are called to be cities on a hill. God knows all of this. He knows about our suffering. He doesn't abandon us, but we are still commanded to be fully present and to be a city on a hill in the middle of darkness. You and I have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility. We have a job. We have a role in all of this. Most of my thoughts about suffering and even elements of my notes today and what you see in your bulletin actually come from this book right here, Diane Langberg, Suffering in the Heart of God. She's an amazing leader, an amazing teacher, and I've learned so much I, um, even in my master's program recently from her tutelage. And she says something that's in the middle of your notes, and it's a little bit lengthy on the screen, but I'll read it for you. I'll read it from here so I don't have to have my back. It says, God has called you and me to participate in the resurrection work. We do ordinary things like move stones or move grave clothes. He has called us to go with seemingly ordinary methods into the place of death and darkness. 
the result. This is what we were told. This is what he's called us to. If I can go back, I don't know if I can. Yep, this is what he's called us to, and this is the result. This is powerful stuff. The result is transformation to the glory of God because the resurrection and the life goes with us and he is in us. Man. So when I talk to you in a few minutes, minutes about your response to suffering, I want you to understand this isn't something that we have to do by ourselves. The, resurrect, the real resurrection and the life goes with us and he is in us. You're probably frustrated with me already, I know. I might not be asked to come back, I get it, but I still love you. You're probably asking yourself, Carl, why, why are we talking about this? Why are you asking me, why is God asking me to step into someone else's messy life when mine is a mess? I get it. I 100% understand, and I get it. I know that you're probably going through your own stuff like I am going through my own stuff. Can I tell you that I think the answer is simple? And it's not me giving the answer. I believe the answer is found in verse 45. Go ahead, look at your Bibles again. The answer to why we have to step into other people's suffering is found in verse 45. Many people who were there with Mary believed in Jesus. That's the goal. That's the goal, my friends. That is it. When you and I step into other suffering, when we are present in their lives, when we are being hands and feet of Jesus, the goal is that through our testimony, through our lives, through our experience and suffering, many come to know Jesus through that. So many come to a saving knowledge of Jesus is the reason that we walk into people's suffering. I'm not, I shouldn't say that it's simple to do. The answer is simple. I sat on my backside for months, months recovering from this surgery. The pain was significant. I had young kids running around, jumping on me. That was probably worse than the actual surgery. I couldn't play basketball, a sport that I loved for a year. But there's, there's, there's a but. If I could list to you, if I had time, I would list to you the amount of life change I saw at my ministry, CrossNet, because I had to sit on my butt and talk to students in, intentionally. It was mandatory. I probably didn't say that right. What I'm trying to say is, if I could share stories, the stories of life change because of the result of not being able to do what I wanted to do and what God called me to do, it would be insane. Students came to know Jesus because I couldn't play basketball, friends. In the midst of my suffering and frustration, I had to sit down and talk to kids that don't even like basketball. I had that opportunity. And it changed my perspective on suffering. It doesn't mean that suffering is easy, but where transformation happened in my life was being fully present in the suffering and allowing God to do what he does best in the midst of our suffering. So why step into the messiness of people's lives? Because I don't think we understand. We do, in the middle of our suffering, I don't think, or their suffering, we don't fully understand or grasp the fruit that can come from it. So how do we respond to suffering? 
what should our response look like to suffering? One of my favorite passages, my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is Romans chapter 12. I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn to Romans chapter 12 if you don't mind. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, is a beautiful picture of community. I think community is the best way to combat suffering. So Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, is where I see our response to suffering. Where I see our response to suffering. And I'm going to read that for you. Verse 9 says this, Do not pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring them. Never be lazy, but work hard to serve the Lord enthusiastically. Verse 12, Rejoice in confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Eager, always be eager to practice hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be too proud to enjoy company of ordinary people. And last of all, don't think that you know it all. Romans 12 gives us a sense of community. My belief is that people who are in suffering, again, this isn't in your your notes section, but people who are suffering need community. So I'm going to chat with you in the few remaining moments that we have about our response to suffering. Keep this in mind. People who are suffering need community. And that community is going to look different. But every time... I talk with students in my ministry. Every day I talk to students and participants that walk through our doors. They are living out consequences. They're living with trauma and consequences because of other people's decisions and other people's choices. This passage coaches me through what it looks like to walk alongside of the people that God loves. So how do we respond to suffering? And you see this already in your notes. The first one is show up and be present. Show up and be present. The power of presence changes people. When they're in the midst of suffering and you walk through the door, I'm not talking about sending a card or sending a text message, but you are there, not with an agenda other than to care and to love. It changes people. I often say that I try to buy my wife's love. You guys know about those five love language things, right? I'm a big gifts person, so hopefully you guys have some things for me afterwards, and it's fine if, it, if you're not. It's all good. But I'm a big, big gifts person, and my wife is the complete opposite because she likes to save money, right? So when I bring her flowers or I bring her her favorite whatever, it's like, man, how much did you spend on that? And I'm just like, come on, like... <laughs> But what my wife asks of me and what she wants from me is not flowers, it's not new shoes or date nights. At the end of the day, all Mary wants is time, right? All she wants is presence. Presence changes our marriage. Presence changes our relationship. And what I mean by this idea of presence and, and walking with people and suffering is don't miss what is right in front of you because you're looking down on a screen, or because you're thinking about your next meeting or your next appointment or the next whatever. Be fully present. Number two, we actually find right out of Romans chapter 12, and it's weep with those who weep. 
pretty easy, pretty self-explanatory, but where I'm going with this is not going with an agenda, not going and to sit with someone who is suffering and wanting to share your own experience of suffering, because that doesn't help. What you and I need to practice when we go and to sit with people who are suffering is this idea of active listening. We know what active listening is, so let me tell you what active listening is not. When someone shares with you in their suffering, a moment of suffering, not trying to explain their suffering away, not trying to solve their suffering for them, not trying to share about your own experience and your own suffering, not questioning their suffering and if it's really suffering. That is what active listening is not. What active listening is, is sitting down and listening without an agenda. Number three, carry the burden. Again, we pull this right out of chapter, uh, Romans chapter 12. And this is pretty simple to me and how I'm processing. I always, how I process, I ask myself questions is how can I advocate for this person? How can I be an advocate for this person? What would it look like for me to lighten a load? Again, I'm not talking about experiencing their suffering, but it's serving. How can I serve them? Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's cutting the grass. Maybe it's dropping the kids off to or from somewhere. But how can I carry a burden for them? Maybe it's identifying. And the last one is in your notes, love unconditionally. Love unconditionally. My friends, Romans 12 tells us that love each other with a genuine infection. In verse 10. In verse 9, it says, don't pretend to love, but really love. So that means that love needs to be sincere. Sincere love is not hypocritical. It has no agenda attached to it. It has no ands or ifs or buts attached to sincere love. Sincere love is not fake. Sincere love is not fake. I want to wrap us up real quick. Because, uh, again, it's not a fun topic to talk about our own suffering. And then we're talking about God gave us a command to do something, not to avoid the messiness, but actually to step into the messiness. So it's not a fun topic to talk about, but God's even doing something in me now as I share. So let me just kind of close with a couple of thoughts, and then I'm going to end with some questions for you. Feel free to write down whatever you would like to write down. Christians, my brothers and sisters, We are not to dodge suffering in our world. We cannot avoid it. We cannot run away from it. As people of God, we are often called in many ways to serve as first responders to our world, to serve as first responders in the midst of suffering. We know what first responders are in our culture and term right now, right? First responders are people that run in when others are running out, right? So if God is calling us to be first responders to the hurt and the trauma and the suffering in our world, we must run in when others are running out. Not to run away. And to be honest with you, not to be bystanders. You guys know what I mean by that? When someone is suffering, not to just be Standing there, letting something happen. That can even be worse at times. This means that we are called into places of death and darkness because Jesus went there himself. 
My friends, I don't believe, my prayer is that this isn't like a gloom and doom message. <laughs> I actually think the opposite. I actually think it's a, a message of hope because if we can begin to live out the gospel, if we can begin to practice some of our responses, that should provide hope to others and even provide hope to ourselves. Diane Langberg in, in this book says a couple of things about Jesus and why this should encourage us and why this should challenge us to live how he did. She says that Jesus left glory, he became little, he entered the darkness, he didn't get lost in the darkness, he didn't abandon us while in the darkness, and he didn't catch our disease. This should challenge us and give us hope. It should give us hope. Again, because we are not doing things in our own power. We're not doing things in our own power. The resurrection, capital R, and the life, capital L, is with us and he is in us. Let me ask you a couple of questions and I will close us in prayer. Is anyone else like really hot? Or is it just, is it me? Or is it outside? Okay. I like sweat it through my deodorant already. It's all good. <laughs> Some of these questions might sound a little bit weird. And again, I'm just, I, like I said, I process through questions. And I wrote these questions last week because I think this is what God was doing in my life. And this is what he was asking me to process. So when you hear your church's name, just know that I put my church's name and I put my own name in there. So the first question is, have you ever thought that maybe you were here at Bethany Grace for more than you and your family? And what I mean by this is that maybe you are here to help someone on their journey of suffering, their journey of hurt. Second question is this, have you ever thought that experiencing community is more than checking off church, community, as a weekly checklist. And I say checklist because checking things off of my to-do list is my favorite thing in the world. Brings me a weird amount of joy. And the last thing I'll put on the screen, it's a longer question. What if experiencing community is not about running or avoiding suffering? but it's actually about understanding God is calling you to step into death and darkness of the world and share and show the love of Jesus Christ. I'll keep that up there for a second. What if? What if experiencing real community isn't about avoiding suffering of your own suffering or your neighbor's suffering, your friend's suffering, your spouse's suffering, whatever, but it's actually about stepping fully in and allowing God to do his thing allowing the gospel to be, to be the, the denominator that fixes the cure, or fixes the problem, I should say. Suffering's hard, I'm not overlooking it, I'm not trying to downplay it. My moments of suffering have been some of the hardest moments in my entire life. But when I was sitting on the couch, recliner in my living room, my wife um, actually had this, uh, this, I don't know, it's like one of those like wooden reclaimed signs that had the verse, be still and know. 
Be still and know that I am God. What I needed in that moment of suffering is stillness. To bask in the presence of God, not to try to fix, complain, whine, ask what if questions, but what I needed was to just stop doing and be still and allow God to do his thing. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for who you are. I'm thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful in a weird way for suffering. I think in suffering we can identify on a small scale what you went through, but I also think suffering grows our faith. It deepens our faith. God, I'm asking Bethany Grace, I'm asking my brothers and sister here, I'm asking myself that we wouldn't run or avoid our own suffering or even the suffering of other people. That our response to, to suffering would be to show up and be present. That we would carry a burden, that we would weep when we needed to weep and we would listen. And that we would love through it. As we go from this place, God, I ask that you give us opportunities to be better in this area and to practice this area not for our namesake but we understand and know that the resurrection of the life is with us and in us and honestly he is going before us in it so we pray these things in Jesus name amen